Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. We want to thank everyone who gave us feedback on the first several episodes of Radical Research. Uh, people like Freddie Palmer, Benjamin Adler, Klaus Jensen, Chris Elliott, Forrest Pitts, Steve Huff, and Brian Grabenz, among a surprising number of others. Really appreciate everybody's enthusiasm and support. We should also take time to thank Scott Hoffman for the great Radical Research logo and image design. Scott has always been the man and continues to be the man. If you can, please give us a review and rating on iTunes. That helps our cause more than you know. As ever, feedback is always encouraged and we're best reached on the Radical Research Facebook page or at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Hunter, you ready for this one? I was yeah. born ready for this one. <laughs> Did you ever think you'd be doing a podcast on a band of Austrian weirdos such as Disharmonic Orchestra? I mean, one band of Austrian weirdos, but maybe not Disharmonic Orchestra. So we've got our nitrous oxide masks on. Let's get to it. Yeah. I think it's as good a time as any to mention the absence of great laughing and metal these days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, there's an art to it. Yeah, that, that, and that one's so natural and kind of, I, think, I guess, unexpected because you've got, you know, this guy, which we'll get into who these people are shortly. Um, but you've got him doing his best sort of Cam Lee, Barney Greenway thing, just super right. And then this laugh that just adds to the maniacal element. Yeah, there's no self-consciousness there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was inexorable logic from this harmonic orchestra's first album. Let's back up a little bit, though. Let's set the okay. scene a little bit. All right. So Austrian band formed in the late 80s. Austria is a country that has, according to metal archives at least, a lot of metal bands, but is generally bereft of very well-known ones. The subjects of our episode tonight, Disharmonic Orchestra, Pungent Stench, Abigor, Summoning, Kind of at odds to name any other really well-known Austrian metal bands, Jeff. I would, yeah, I wouldn't say well-known, but uh, that band Disastrous Murmur. Oh, that's true, yeah. I think they had some kind of shared member with uh, Disharmonic. Disharmonic are a trio, and we'd be talking about these three guys a lot here, but they had a second guitarist early on, and I think maybe that guy went to Disastrous Murmur. And okay. Disastrous Murmur had some degree of success, I suppose, but I, I was never a big fan. And yeah, I'm hard-pressed to name any others, really. Yeah, me too. I, I think as much as we, you and I both like Abigor, I'm not sure how you feel about summoning. I'm not a big fan. I'm, I, I am a, a big fan of a certain portion of the, their discography. Right. And I, and I think Pungent Stench, I've become kind of picky with over the years. Like I, I really only need Ben Caught Buttering. And of course, I have the split that they did with Disharmonic. And, but really, that's, you know, that's all I have. Yeah, Disharmonic, <laughs> Disharmonic overshadows all the Austrian bands. Oh, same here. Um, and a lot of other bands in the 90s, frankly. I'm hoping that anyone listening who has never heard Disharmonic Orchestra, Jeff and I, can convey how special they are. You know, they were born into that late 80s, early 90s kind of death grind thing. It's hard to really overstate the influence of the early Eric stuff on a lot of what was happening in Europe. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, completely. I can, yeah. you know, even though they weren't recording for Earache at any point, you can yeah. see the logo right on those early records. <laughs> sure. I mean, but I mean, I think Earache set the tone for a lot of what was happening in continental Europe. I, you know, a lot of the Swedish bands were super influenced by Carcass and Bolt Thrower and Napalm. And I, I think Disharmonic Orchestra is a part of that. And, and I think you'll, if you're familiar with those, those bands and that label and just kind of the general zeitgeist of the late 80s extreme metal scene, I think that when we play some of these clips, you'll hear that. But I think and I hope that you'll hear a very distinct personality already emerging um, and one that, that really comes to fruition on the next album. But I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse there. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk about Exposition's Prophylax. Let's get right into it. I mean, because they had a few demos in 1988. They did this split with Pungent Stench. It's just, it sounds kind of terrible, but like a lot of stuff. And I think- charming too. Yeah, like the first album, it's not a perfect recording, but uh, the charm really comes through. And, you know, after years of listening to it that way, you kind of wouldn't want it any other way. No, no, no. And I think that's the case with a a lot of late 80s, early 90s metal records. So Exposition's Prophylax, and apparently the, the meaning of this title, which I, I assume will be apparent to any of our uh, German-speaking listeners, mm. is Anti-Infectious Measures. Which doesn't help much. <laughs> it doesn't. In fact, it's no clearer than the, the title itself. Right. And I'm not sure what this album actually does to counter infection. Um, as I hear it, it, it only causes infection. And, um, and confusion if you're reading some of the song titles, which we can certainly get into as well. Well, there, there's one in particular that we'll have to get into. And I think you know which one that is. I think I, think I do. Uh, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you can tell it's an early album. You can tell it's a, you know, a first album by a band. It takes on a lot of the characteristics that you'll find in that, that kind of nebulous early death metal grindcore fusion sound that was so popular at the time but also you can hear a band whose ideas and uh and ambition are sort of outpaced by their abilities would you say that i I completely think that's where they were at for this first album that would eventually come together for them sure uh, and, and pretty quickly, but yeah, um, in, a, in a couple of years, in fact, with this album, no, but there's so much fun to be had with this album. And I know it sounds kind of crazy <laughs> when, we, when we listen to it, that is this a fun thing, but it, it, there's a, there's that early, there's that quirk that they have always had um, that really comes through. And I think we should maybe listen to accelerated evolution from the album and then kind of get into it a little more. Let's. Okay. So this is from expositions prophylax and a song called a little snippet from accelerated evolution. Okay, I got to say, 
I love this guy's vocals at this point in their evolution. Their, their accelerated evolution? But yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. he's already just kind of got this desperate howl about it. Um, yeah. One of the other things I think is interesting is that, you know, extreme metal at the time still had like a conspicuous motive to be extreme. And I think a lot of the time extreme meant extreme speed. Yep. I think when you listen to this song, I mean, the album in general, it's interesting to note that they never rely too heavily on speed. There are always other dimensions at play with this band, and e- even in the early days. Yep. I, yeah, I they mean, were never like the super fast blazing band. I mean, they had yeah. a grind, and I think a lot of people equate grind with speed. Um, right. They, they sort of did their grind in a whole other way. And I, I think what I that snippet we just heard is very typical of early disharmonic. I don't mean that they're typical because I don't think anything they ever did was typical, but it's a no. really solid representation of what their basic sound was at the time. I still, and you hear that invention um, in terms of the syncopation, uh, mm-hmm. some of the rhythmic quirks. Um, you hear the bass playing is sort of out front. He does that little brilliant bass stab. Yeah, he does this little bass stab and it, it's just, you know that that even that little bit a little bit unusual for peer bands at the time oh sure i mean well i mean the the bass was in metal especially like on the sort of extreme end was always pretty much subordinate to everything else um and that's really one of the interesting things about disharmonic orchestra that we'll get into a little bit later is how they they tend to subvert expectations and i think what we just played is a good example of that do we want to talk about the bass player at this point? Yeah, I personally, I think um, Ervig is one of the most underrated bass players in that era of metal. And, and I think that when we start playing some other stuff from the next two records, that anyone who's unfamiliar with um, Disharmonic will understand why I'm saying that. Do, do you think he's as special as I am? Yeah, I always have. Always. <laughs> as I, as I, no, I did not mean that. Freudian slip. What did you, what did you say? I said, do you think he's as special as I am? <laughs> but first problem, I don't play the bass. Second problem. I, I, also, I also don't get birthday presents, but that's a whole other <laughs> thing. I do think he's special, though. Yeah, I, I love this guy. And I, most of this conversation, for me, almost revolves around getting to the parts where he's standing out. I, I just oh, yeah. love, love his, his role in the band and just how different he is. He's, he's completely coming from left field in a way that most oh, other yeah. metal bassists were not. Yeah, he's thinking about metal in a different way than most bassists were at the yep. time. Yep. So let's get into the album some more. Do you want to play something else? Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to play you know, sick. Sick, dishonorable, yeah, sick Dishonorableness, which is hard to say. Great. We'll listen and talk after the snippet. Okay.
So yeah, that um the clip that you played is pretty representative of the, the more interesting aspects of the album, but there's a part that comes later at around the two minute 15 mark. Um, and it's, it's very simple. It's octave chords played on the guitar at, at quarter notes, but they lilt and they create this, this sense of melancholy that I think really kind of characterizes the next record, not mm-hmm. to be unadventural conscious, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about in, in not too long. Sure. I also like uh, Martin Messner, the drummer. I like his work on that particular snippet. He's, he reminds me a little bit of Away from Voivod sure. um, in terms of his sort of hi-hat and, and hi-hat, work. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, just throws a little bit of, I don't want to say the word groove, but uh, we'll, we'll use it here because it just works. It kind of rocks in, in the way that Chris Reifert might rock some autopsy. Um, yeah, sure. It has that, that older kind of approach that sort of, trap kit approach rather than that like pummeling the, base sort of the bill ward thing. approach yeah sure yeah exactly that's, you know, that's and, and you know talking about metal from this era i don't think that the word groove had become a pejorative yet true. um the way that it would in the late 90s but yeah i totally agree with you man i mean it's it's just got a, a nice driving groove about it and i mean i will and we'll talk about mesner more but like he is a drummer that kind of defies the expectations of what the drum should sound like during this period. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And let's just talk about their song titles now, because I don't think it was some, some of those song titles on this album are quite bizarre. I love, I love the song title onset of serious problems. I just think (laughs) it kind of lays it out quite nicely. Um, <laughs> it's. I, I'm not sure if they were even trying to be humorous. It doesn't seem like it was that much of a of a thing where it was like English as second language sort of stuff, right? Um, I, you know, and there's another song title, "Quintessentially Unnecessary Institution." <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. The way most unnecessary institutions are. I mean, sure. And, and the unequal <laughs> visual response mechanism. I mean, just they they had a real interesting sort of lyrical vibe and. Um, Another I'm thing with you, though. I tend to think that they're kind of playing with the language more than anything. Right. Although there's the one song title, and we're going to play a clip from this song as well. Maybe introduce this one. You this know, is a little ditty called Disappeared with Hermaphrodite Choirs. Okay, so we get a little speed there from them, but, but back to the song title. Like every choir I've ever been in was a hermaphrodite choir. Yeah, just single genitals. Yeah, and, and you know, and we were always disappearing. I, I can hang. I mean, I, I can really relate to them. If there's anything about disharmonic orchestras that they're relatable. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. That's uh, that's some of Exposition's prophylax. Speaking of accelerated evolution, let's talk about their next record. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, like almost immediately there is a, a prog influence at play that, that was not apparent on the first record, right? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, we have, you know, the, the songs on Expeditions and Prophylax range from like two to four minutes. I'd say probably like a three minute average. And there are what? There's, there's a bunch of them, I think. Yeah, like what? Fi- I want to say it's 15, a 12. 16. It's a 12 song album and the, the CD has some extra stuff. But yeah, it's okay. I, I have the CD. Um, it's, it's short. It's 37 minutes. The second album, Not to Be Undimensional Conscious, was not much longer, but there were less songs. I think there were like nine yeah, songs. Nine, nine songs on that one. And uh, there's just a lot more meat on the bones on this album and a lot more directional shifts. Uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah, definitely a more defined personality. Yeah, and, um, and they go down well, some different avenues. I don't know. I'm almost going to undermine what I just said when we keep talking about the band. <laughs> but Because they change every album. But, but I think maybe what I mean by that is that the personality of the, the players really comes through on this album. Oh, yeah. And I think part of that is the production, the, the clarity uh, and, and the jump in quality is yep. significant. They recorded this album at Sunlight Studios, which is mm-hmm. the fabled studio in Stockholm where um, Entombed invented the, the Swedish sound um, that would be copied by so many bands for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is this kind of weird tradition of bands who don't conform to that sound using sunlight. I'm thinking about um, about Amorphous. Yep. A little later, um, Catatonia on yep. Discouraged ones use sunlight. Mm-hmm. What do you um, What do you make of them using sunlight on this album? They're clearly not chasing the you know the entombed spore. They're not. I I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is that they were probably unsatisfied with their recording jobs up to this point. I mean, they had that botched, you know, pungent stench EP sure. stuff. Uh, the demos are demos expositions, although we love the sound of it. It, you know, it's not the, the greatest sounding. I imagine that with their maturation as performers and writers, they were looking for a studio that could just, they could get the most out of their music sure. and how it was evolving at that point. So I think they, you know, because sunlight was popular and was around and was a noted studio, they, it probably just made sense. But yeah, it's kind of cool too because it it fuses the heaviness of all that with the quirkiness that's just sort of inherent in disharmonic orchestra. I mean, certainly hear the guitar tone, and and you know it's sunlight. Yeah, we're dancing around, but it, it, it but it's fair to say that there's no way in hell that they went to sunlight and asked for the left hand. <laughs> no, that was just you know if you that's what Skogsberg, yeah, yeah. Once we start listening to this, some of these snippets, you'll see that that's really not where their heads were at at all. Um, I, I would say like the opening of the album, their heads are in piece of time. I, I think the drumming on the first song is a clear influence or shows the clear influence of Steve Flynn. And of course, we're talking I, about Atheist. I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners yes, know what you're talking about. But no, just yes. like it's it's amazing to me how they go so quickly from expositions to, to this to this sort of like weirdly geometric vertiginous kind of drumming. Jeff and I have, I, I think that on the Oliver show, we talked a little bit about our origin story as friends and how, when we became friends, we discovered that we had a lot of really, really uncanny intersections. This harmonic orchestra was certainly among those, right? Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, but you've always said that one of the appeals for this album for you 
is that it almost always sounds like it's on the verge of falling apart, but it never, it never does. Yeah, and that, that's my favorite thing about a lot of bands. I think uh, on, on the more extreme thrash or death side that I like from the 80s and 90s, like I think about Voivod's Roar album. Like that was mm-hmm. just like verging on collapse. And that's right. part, of, part of the appeal to me because they're just playing at the edge of their abilities. And I, and I think this harmonic found a sort of new direction with this second album. And, you know, the, the riff construction is sort of architectural. The rhythm section does all this angular, really kind of precarious stuff. It, and it's sure. got dexterity. They're playing with dexterity. Yeah, hair vig. Big and time. It, yes, and it's under control, but it sounds still like it's a bit on the verge of total collapse. Like it's just going to fall apart any moment. One of the things I love about this record is that how it sort of upends the hierarchies that you find in, in metal where the guitar leads everything. A lot of times the guitar sort of provides a foundation and the drums and the bass are contributing the most texture and, and the most color. I don't know if it's purposely visionary or not, but I mean, it, it, it really is kind of futuristic stuff that they're doing here. I don't want to belabor like a Rush comparison, but I, I think these three guys are similar to Rush in the sense that they all have their own very unique approach to their instrument. And right. w- when they come together, it's a chemistry unlike any other. And this is what makes part of what makes this band special. Um, I agree. And, you know, it's what makes me love them. Like, cause this is the first album I really, I think fully heard. I, it's the first one I bought and really sunk into. I mean, it just immediately like that quizzical, absurd element of this band just struck me. And like the, the Dali-esque sort of images that float by while I listen and, and the, the, the cover art, we'll, we'll get to the artwork a little later, yeah, but yeah. Uh, man, they just, they just were, you know, a lot of, a lot of great images coming up and a lot of great textures and shapes that no other band was offering at this time. So yeah, naturally they, I had, um, I'd never heard of them um, until Eula Garrett uh, reviewed this album in Maniacs. I, I was immediately compelled by the review and actually went to the record store. <laughs> you can imagine a major American chain record store carrying early nuclear blast stuff, but that was a thing back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember picking up, picking it up and seeing the cover art and like, I had no reference point. I, I wasn't a very well-heeled listener at the time. I was still pretty young. But I'd never seen anything in metal quite like it. And then I put it on and the cover was commensurate with my expectations of how the music would sound. And it was equally new to me. I was very much used to Dan Seagrave artwork, one of my favorite music metal artists of all time. I, I think you'd probably agree with me. Oh yeah, um, we've already we've already yeah. talked about him a bit on a past. Sure, I, know, I imagine we will continue to do so. <laughs> um, but but I, I had no reference point for this, and but it set the it set the tone for how surprised I would be by the actual music when I heard it. And uh, I, without further ado, let's play some some not to be undimensional conscious. Yeah, this is the lead track, Perishing Passion. Uh, perfectly sets the tone of what this album's all about, the, the great leap in maturity they made, and uh, the more sophisticated recording job. So this is Perishing Passion.
Okay, man, I love that. <laughs> I, I, I want to say too, like obviously the vocals are still super awesome. Yeah, and the the, the drumming is actually really tumultuous. It's still very heavy, but I think you know, and that's and that's the best thing when you have this the the heaviness of the vocal and and the drumming and and then kind of with that sort of tempered more mature aspect that they're gaining. I just think it's it's a it's a great marriage. Yeah, the drums are almost like people in jazz talk about playing pulse instead of mm-hmm. playing time. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're abiding by some other force. That's mm-hmm. almost what the drums at the beginning of that song sound like. They yeah. sound like cresting waves. But yeah, I mean, but it's still super crushing and super heavy. The vocals are maniacal as ever. You mentioned the song title, Perishing Passion. Mm-hmm. These guys have some of the coolest song titles from that entire era, right? Oh, oh yeah, I, I agree. And, addicted seas with missing pleasure. <laughs> right. I have no idea what that means. But you know, uh, you know idiosyncrasy, you know, a mental sequence, um, mind seduction. I mean, it's just it's playing with some surreal ideas that I think they actually managed to translate into the music itself. Absolutely. And and although the stuff is deadly serious, uh, and there's of course a, a great part of levity and, and humor later, which we'll get to they don't take themselves too seriously. The, of course the back cover is infamous, really uh, the picture of them with all, all the stuffed animals <laughs> Teddy bears. And, and you got that red little bear at the bottom wearing a deceased cap. I mean, that's <laughs> great stuff. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I can't say enough about that picture. I, I made sure to print that in mean deviation. Oh, it's a, it's a classic. Yeah. For- because I mean, so many bands at the time were so self-consciously evil and brutal. And here are these guys that are, are effortlessly so, and um, almost more so, it's almost like they're just they're giving themselves over to the the lunacy of this stuff, you know. Well, yeah, and, and, and just letting go. Exactly, and for me, when a band is truly heavy and and dark and, and apocalyptic sounding, the way disharmonic always has an element of that, no matter how arty they were they would get. You know, to me, it's 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 more so. It's it's heavier and more convincing when the guys aren't trying to be so heavy and convincing. I mean, to me, there's nothing worse than like sort of ooky spooky music that's trying to be ooky spooky and sure. kind of just you know it, it it becomes melodrama and just sort of stupid at one point. So I think yeah, that, I mean, it, it, it descends into self parody. Right. There's so there's a fine line between sort of this kind of genuine delivery the way they have it versus some some of the more cartoonish aspects of death metal. And granted, some of those bands we even like, I'm sure. But yeah, I just, just this is just how special Disharmonic is. If you if listeners haven't noticed by now, we kind of like this band. <laughs> so we're we're taking this one personally. Yeah, I I, I hope the the hyperbole isn't uh, too hyperbolic. It's n- no hyperbole here, man. <laughs> this is just the truth. Um, you know, if, and talking about the imagery a little bit, like I used to have a disharmonic T-shirt and there was like some sort of female in orange water kind of picture on the front. I'm not sure where it came from. It was just for the T-shirt. But on the back, it said perishing passion and it had these two frogs in an embrace. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah, exactly. It was it was cool. Like it, it didn't look corny or, or stupid, but it certainly didn't look typically metal either. Yeah. It, Again, I just, these are the things I love about this band. Yeah, no, they're always playing with, I, I want to say they're playing with expectations, but I, I don't, I think they're just probably following their own muse, you know? I don't oh, think sure. they really worried about what people thought or anything. No, nah, the, nah, nah, these are guys, they, they, they began, uh, their, their stated influences early on were Massacre and Voivod. Yeah. And I, and I think you, you can hear both of those. 
Absolutely. But then you hear on this album, I think you hear some Rush. We'll get into some of that. And who knows what else? Uh, just, you know, their, their brand of angular metal, I just, it almost has no precedent. It's hard, it's hard to pick out influences. Now, let's move on to the song Groove. Okay, let's. Beautiful song, in my opinion. Yeah. The, the opening of this, for me, it sort of epitomizes the, the overarching tone of this record. I mean, it's a record with a lot of different moods, a lot of different feels. If I were introducing someone to this band, this might be the first thing I played them. Yeah, totally. I, and again, this is a great example uh, and possibly the best example of how every member is contributing sort of on his own. Like you, you yeah. can just, your ear can go to just one of the instrumentalists and focus on that. Or, you know, they're, they're coming together as a band, obviously, and, and playing for the greater good in a sense. Yeah, but, totally agree um, with that. Just love this song. And I also like Patrick Klopp's vocal delivery on this one and, and especially the lyrics. I'm going to actually quote some of the lyrics just because they're, we've talked about the language of this band and the titles uh, that they've had. But one of, one of the great lines is, my attempts to freeze the time were failures, but I have been close. Intense I had, you could divine, and I'm aware of boring those. And then another verse is really great. Those who never really did approve my actual aims, but though I dance with herds of goofy news of groove, make up peculiar names in trance. Mm-hmm. Not enough time to pick that apart. And news is the animal, GNU. So right. <laughs> goofy news of groove. Let's listen to groove. Okay, man, what a glorious cacophony. If that beginning doesn't take you somewhere, I mean, it's beautiful. I'm with you. I also love how textured the drumming is. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like he's using the entire kit. It's, it's um, a little bit sculptural. And I think it also gets to that point you were talking about with Martin earlier, that of that the pulse thing. 
Yeah, no, it's just this super organic uh, sound that he develops. Um, and yeah, he just, he does. He cr- just creates a, a feeling. I wonder how this would sound to someone whose ear isn't acclimated to metal at all. Like, because I, it, it does sound like they might've been in different rooms playing um, a completely different song. Like there's, there's an aspect of that song. I mean, it's, it's held together. There's a glue. Right. But it's also kind of like that calamity we were talking about earlier, where it almost sounds like they're just going to go off and, and veer off of each other at any point. Sure. And it's, it's almost like there was one part of the song written and then the two other guys went off and just wrote parts that they thought would um, accompany that well. Right. They didn't hear each other and then they right. got together and played it. But, and to make it sound so cohesive after all of that is said, I, it, no, another great, beautiful aspect of this band. I would um, actually be more interested in hearing someone's impressions who got into metal in, say, 2013, 2014 about this. Yeah, sure. The, the thing you risk there, and I know there are a lot of open-minded uh, younger metalheads out there, I'm sure, but the thing you risk there is this kind of stuff sounding quaint. Antiquated, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think there are a couple guys in your band. I don't know if we want to call them out. Maybe we'll edit this out later. <laughs> but they, they, they look at some of this stuff from the 90s as quaint. Well, Gail less so than he used to, but Chris, absolutely. I played Chris Oblivion's Nemesis, and he asked me, literally the first thing he asked me, that drummer mean to do that? <laughs> but this is a guy who hates water, so, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Can we keep this in? Absolutely. We love these guys. We do. Chris I'm in Gary, a band with these guys. Yeah, they're great. So here we go. I, I think um, we got we to gotta get to Return of the Living Beat. The elephant in the room. <laughs> and we, I mean, we're not going to belabor this, but it, we have to talk about it, right? Yeah. An, an Austrian death metal band making a foray into really, really terrible hip hop. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll play the part. I want to give a little bit of history on this song. It began as a song called Putrid Stench on the split with Pungent Stench. And when I, I actually interviewed Patrick for my first, the first issue of my fanzine back in 92, and he told me that they, they, told, just, they dig rap. And when they played it live, they, that, this Putrid Stench song, they wanted to sort of expand it somehow because it was quite short. And they, uh, they decided to put in a rap part. Then they renamed it The Return of the Living Beat. If you've heard this song at least once, you never forget this part. I mean, and, and, and as long as I've known this album and as much as I love it, I'm still not sure this part works. I also want to ask you, Hunter, if you think, is this as lame as Rush's Roll the Bones rap? Oh, God, no. Oh, so it's, it, it, so it's better than it's that. It's way better than that. Okay. Or not as Oh, bad. yeah. Jeff and I saw Rush in 2002 and there was a woman in the audience who was pretty much mute the entire time and then they played Roll the Bones and if you listen to Rush I hope you don't like Roll the Bones <laughs> uh, but it's, it's the only time in the entire show she danced yeah, yeah. Um, she came alive with that song yeah no um, there, there are a few things um, lamer than Roll the Bones I gotta say um I don't know if it works, but I always kind of found it charming. Let, let's play it because I, I don't want to talk too much about it before people hear it maybe sure. for the first time. Let, let's do and it. I, and then we'll, we'll follow up. <laughs> let's do it. Bring the beat back. 
I want to say the return into metal at that point is pretty badass. But it's like this, it's like this harmony corruption, like mid pace death grind thing that just, it's so raging after that. Yeah, I, I totally right. agree with you, man. Like no matter how you feel about the hip hop break, that totally salvages anything. It almost deletes the hip hop break. Like, Oh, now we're going <laughs> to trash it and destroy it and completely disintegrate it. Like, you know, just make it disappear. It, and maybe that's wishful thinking. The, the, the thing about Return of the Living Beat is it's only one minute and 51 seconds long. So right. with, with, and, and with the metal moments there being so kind of cutthroat, it, it makes that transgression a bit tolerable. You don't, so, you don't have to skip it every listen the way you might like a five-minute transgression, right? Yeah, I never skip it. No. I also, I, I love that like they didn't even use an actual turntable. They just sampled like the worst scratching they could find. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like I'm sure someone in Vienna had a turntable, you know? I can't even question their motives. I have no idea. I, I think in great contrast to that, there's a song on the album called Time Frame the penultimate tune on not to be undimensional conscious. And this one's great. Oh, it's beautiful. And I, I like the, the rush overtones in this one are pretty obvious. I think there's a lot more than that going on on it. But, um, but I, I, I would like to believe that rush was sort of the, the crucible for this. I would I think, think so. so. And the, the part that I'm going to play, I, I did a little bit of creative editing on this one because it, I found it very hard to, uh, play a snippet and and I, and I guess this might be a good time to let listeners know why we don't play full songs usually radical research isn't intended as a radio station uh, we also think it's incumbent on the listener to do the work themselves uh, we want to set them up we want to try to engage them and, and, and excite people you know if, and if you're inspired to go out and discover something new that's that's really fantastic and part of our mission but really just don't want to do all the heavy lifting for you. We, we just want to kind of encourage you to sink into these albums yourself. Is that all fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. So well, I mean, I, too, I mean, I don't, I don't think we want to spoil the, the wonder of discovery for anyone either. Well, that's part of it. Cause there, there are yeah. moments on these albums that we talk about. Uh, and this th doesn't go just for this episode, but all, all of these episodes so far that, you know, there are moments on albums that we've talked about in the past that, you know, we haven't actually talked about, uh, some some of the high points on some of these albums we kind of just want to let those be discovered don't want to kind of give it all away so i did some creative editing with time frame and the moments we're going to hear are just a, a bit of how the song starts very loud and forward establishes some some more heaviness but as you'll notice with the edit it becomes quieter um and it plays with some slow building of this very particular atmosphere that really is the bulk of this song uh, and then we jump into the end so i've, I've done kind of three edits and i hope it uh, isn't too jarring, but I, I think it. I think it'll give you a great idea of sort of what this quasi instrumental is all about. So here we go. This is uh, this is some moments from Time Frame.
Yeah, so I mean, this is the, I think the most obviously dramatic that we've heard disharmonic orchestra up to this point, right? Indeed. Yeah. Um, Ervig, as always for me, kind of stealing the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to probably end up belaboring his role in this band, but like, it's just so interesting. Like you can hear um, Blackie in his style, yeah. but I hear a lot of like early 80s British post-punk stuff too. Like oh, wow. This guy's okay. obviously listened to a lot of Joy Division, mm-hmm. Chameleons, so on and so forth, and, and managed to translate that into a, a death metal band. Yeah, I think his tone is certainly some somewhere outside of metal. It's not even it's blacky in the sense of like where he's putting his fingers on the neck sometimes. Right, 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 right. Sense of melody or or kind of warped sense of melody, the fractured stuff he does. Yeah. But the tone, especially on this album, really is outside of metal somewhere. And I th- and I think you know your example is is right on the mark. Yeah, but I, I love the cinematic stuff in this song too, um, and I, I love them playing with the the sense of time and time passing. You know. I mean, it really communicates that pretty beautifully. It could have been really cliched, but it's not at all. Uh, it's, it's a band aspiring to genuine art and, and I think achieving, achieving its aim. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And this wonderfully brings us to, to the end of the discussion here, but uh, just a, a nice short bridge to the third album, which uh, followed up pretty quickly. And suddenly we're in 1993. Yeah, so let's talk about 1993. What a, you want to um, talk about 1993? Do you do you like 1993? Yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's, it's pretty. It's a pretty good year. Friends, uh, <laughs> I, I made I made Hunter a shirt that just said 1993 on it. <laughs> it's the most cherished gift I've ever received. <laughs> well, no, no, please, I, I'm not. I, I I'm not fishing for compliments, and I don't think it is. However, I just to me, it just you know, it, it really has to be said that what is what is 1993? What does that mean for you? 1993? Yeah. We're 10 years apart. You're 10 years younger than I am. Right. And I grew up with, you know, metal in the early 80s. So by 1993, I had, as a fan, been following for almost 12, 13 years. Right. So, and and I was seeing 1993 and hearing 1993 as this really great peak uh, and pinnacle of the evolution of of the form you know, of the genre of metal. Um, and I right. knew that at the time, like it was pretty obvious when bands like Believer and Atheist and, and Cynic and Pestilence and, and Oblivion were really, really mutating quickly and just doing stuff that was just so progressive and futuristic and, and technical and, and just um, unlike anything that had come before it really. And it was a swell of, it was almost like a movement. There was a swell of all this stuff coming out at the time. Uh, and we can even look at like Mekong Delta or just keep. And, and even like heavy rock music too. I mean, it was, it was this convergence of all these narratives that had been building up to a point. And it was for me, 1993 is where metal and it was doing this before, but that's when metal really, really opened its arms to the rest of the music world. Um, and all of a sudden, there were no boundaries and no limits, and nothing was forbidden. And all these, you know, death metal bands and not death metal bands began absorbing influences from, you know, from fusion, from alternative rock, from world music. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about an album like uh, Transcendence in the Peripheral. You know, it's like yeah. the sort of a foundational record to Funeral Doom, but like also heavily indebted to dead can dance. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, 
1993 is, in my opinion, metals Annus Mirabilis, and it, it kind of maps out most of the the pathways that metal was able to take afterward. So that that sets the scene for where we're at with Disharmonic Orchestra, because they're they're here in the midst of all of this, and we get Pleasure Dome, which was recorded in 1993 and re, uh, released apparently what January first, January first, 1994. Interesting. Okay. Yep. And this this album marks. Uh, a departure away from death metal. It's not a death metal record. Um, it's a metal record and it's quite heavy, but it's definitely, I don't know. It, it sort of bridges a divide between metal and a kind of mutated rock, right? Like there's, there's almost no double bass and really like the vocals are a major, uh, major move away from death metal. Definitely. Yeah. I, I only hear traces of death metal in this album. Um, and that's okay. Uh, as far as what it is, what, what pleasure dome sounds like, it's just, you, you gotta listen and figure it out for yourself. I, I really not to be Agreed. lazy or, or just dismissive and, and, and not wanting to describe it, but I can't like, it's, it just is. I think we'd be doing it as doing it a disservice to try to describe it. Now, how do you feel about Patrick's vocals on this album? Because, you know, he was and remains one of my favorite death metal vocalists for the early material. But here, he made this drastic shift in this kind of talk singing. And, and I can't, I, say, yeah, I can't I, say I love it, although at times it fits the music. It's definitely this expulsion. Maybe he can't I even sing, but, it's, but it's, the passion is there. I don't even know that you and I have ever talked about this, but the talk singing, you know, the Shprecha song, whatever you want to call it, mm. like, very much so. You're right on the money there. But I tell you who it reminds me of more and more is Peter Steele hmm. and it's some similar vocals on the first typo. Absolutely. But even yeah. on the later okay. stuff, like on um, Prophets of Doom, when he's yep. sort of proselytizing, yep. um, I, I hear that in the vocals on this record. Now that you um, mentioned Slow, Deep, and Hard, I can totally hear that. Yeah. yeah. Very bare, I, unaffected, just again almost like conversational uh, they are yeah no they're they're in the service of i don't know if it, telling a story is i was just going to say yeah like reading a piece of prose or something you right know, it's right it's not it's not sung it's also not the total exhortation of death metal no no or the like horse kind of hollow bart of hardcore <laughs> something i don't know it's a synthesis of all three maybe other i'm with you though i i found them off putting at first but i mean they're you know they're part of the fabric of the record for me now yep let's listen to a piece called the silence i observe um probably i, I think collectively one of our favorites on this album especially one moment in the song yeah and we're gonna hear it here and this is the silence i observe
I feel like I've said this before, but man, I love that. <laughs> In the words of Aristotle, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Did he, is that what he said? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it showcases everybody in the band so beautifully, too. Again, mm-hmm. Ervic, like, totally setting the tone. Funny thing, um, I never really thought about it before um, we picked that song to play here, but those harmonics like the Peaceville three all used harmonics in a sort of similar way. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of wonder if they were thinking about, you know, Gothic or even early. Yeah. yeah. Chris Fallen. I mean, they, maybe they heard serenades by the time they recorded this. I don't know. I mean, I'd like um, to think so. I, I, you know, I do know, especially with, with hindsight and with just further listening over the years that, that, that Peaceville three, I, I think that influence was broad, and I think it, I think I agree. even back then, like I even that Gourmet band from uh, Sweden. Oh, oh yeah, um, absolutely. Big they were guy. they were definitely Swedish death metal, but they were definitely influenced probably as heavily by the Peaceville three as anything else. Um, again, for listeners who may be on the fence or you know interested in other stuff, uh, Peaceville three is Anathema, My Dying Bride, Paradise Lost. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think this harmonic was sort of listening to that, taking a few pages out of those books. Sure. And we, there's a lot we could play off Pleasure Dome. We're really not going to. It's, uh, it's a wonderful album, and it's, it's tempting to play almost every song. There is one moment that this is one I do kind of sometimes skip. Where can I, I park my horse? It, it's sort of like this like proto-Green Day pop punk thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the kind of thing that Pi- would, would lead Pyogenesis on the road to perdition. <laughs> Or five years after this yeah, yeah I, I i don't think it's essential to the record at all i mean there are a lot of records with you know with weird quirky maybe not quite right songs that just that that somehow fuse into the hole mm-hmm. um i can kind of take this song out of it and it doesn't ruin the integrity of the album in any way yeah and and i think the ending of the album is real strong after it because where can i park yeah. my horse is third to last and then we get off the ground and sunday mood those are pretty special pieces sunday mood's super special yeah and, and um i just i just feel like it would have been a stronger album without that song but you know when when you skip over it then you you create the album you want i guess this brings us to the title track and yes. for all the hyperbole we've just laid thick here. Uh, I, I, there's not, I think this is probably my favorite disharmonic song and it's it doesn't your Patrick on vocals. Uh, it's I don't, I mean, I, it's, I mean, I'd struggle to compare it with anything. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's an instrumental song. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to play the whole thing, right? We are going to play the whole thing. I'm, now I'm going back on what I was sort of saying earlier about not wanting to play the whole thing. This is one exception that we'll make from time to time, I think, because I had, I had real trouble finding a part of this song to play that conveyed the whole properly, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It yeah even if we played it up to the part with the distorted bass, it, it still wouldn't capture the full effect. No, because it, it, it has this slow, patient unfolding, and I just want it everyone to hear that um and really you know we kind of hinted at this in the last episode um especially the part about super sister and their fuzz bass and having heard what disharmonics bass player is like and what his approach and tone is this is the ultimate experience yeah this is sort of like the the end of the morphology of the the fuzz bass i think (laughs) absolutely it never it never got beyond this so let's listen to the whole thing. This is just a, a beautiful composition. I just don't think there's much more we can say that's going to do it justice. This is Pleasure Dome.
I really want to live inside that bass sound. I just want to, <laughs> I want to crawl inside and forget about everything. That it is, sounds like a blanket. Yeah. It sounds like a blanket. I mean, that's a pathetic <laughs> fallacy, but still, it does. It sounds like, it, it, like I'm sad, and that blanket is just wrapping around me and making me feel better about things. That is awesome and true. I'm going to quote you on that. Also, I, we, we talk about the bass work on that song so much. Every time we talk about it, that's all we talk about. But I think you have to give a little bit of credit to Patrick's guitar work oh, at the man, end. Patrick, no, no, no. Patrick's work on that song is beautiful. Man, especially at the Very, end. Like, lyrical, I would say, almost. Yeah, and it does bring back some of the calamity and dread of the early stuff at the end. Uh, you know, oh, uh, absolutely. A- after this mostly tranquil sort of thing. Well, that's, but, um, like, that's what makes the song so extraordinary. We couldn't love a song more. So here, here we go. We're just deep, deep in it right now with Pleasure Dome. So let's, let's crawl out because we can stay yeah. here forever. Uh, we can stay in this blanket forever. Let's talk about the artwork across these yeah, three let's. albums. Abstract and mostly suggestive is something that was in your notes. Yes. You talked about Dolly earlier. Not to be is like, there are actual signifiers of surrealism in that oh, artwork. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but like the first album, so any infectious measures, how does that title correlate to the cover art? Yeah, I don't know. That that cover art always seems so strange to me. Like I never got it. Like it's it's like this kind of It's like the inside of a squat. Like or a squatter. I I always see it as a warehouse and there's like yeah. maybe bits of I don't know, cotton or fabric laying around yeah. and then there's an umbrella, which is kind of interesting because it's such a sunny day outside and I'm not sure if that is any kind of symbolic <sighs> gesture right part of the artist but i do always picture the band playing just really really raw and loud inside that room as i listen to the yeah, album. same so it works it works on that level i'm not sure yeah, <laughs> i'm not sure i like that cover or not i mean it but now now that i relate it to expositions prophylax i love it because i love that album well that's the thing is like at this point you couldn't untether the artwork from the album right and then as you said not to be is this very obvious sort of nod to surrealism. Yep. Sad too. It, it is. Yeah. Yeah. She's sort of like looking kind of down and melancholy yeah. and um, you know, that's a pretty stark scene behind her, but it's also so colorful. Like yeah. the colors on it are so vivid. We don't see orange like this in no. early nineties death metal very often. Not a lot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or, even like, or like hair like this is kind of orange, but not like that. And then the Pleasure Dome cover, this is my favorite artwork that this band ever did. I, I love it. The, the fold-out booklet, so sure. worth getting um, on CD uh, and the back cover. A little bit Art Deco, would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I love this artwork. And I don't know what it is. It looks like Gears. It looks like... Yeah, I was going to say, it's Gears. Yeah. I, best I can tell. Yeah. Really great artwork. I, I love this cover. But I mean, does it, does it say anything about the music? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were using their classic old logo on all three of these albums, which is a pretty metal looking logo. I like it though. Uh, oh, I, I love yeah, it. I think it, it, it translates across their evolution. It, it um, does. And I, and I think that this is just, these covers are just telling you like, look, we're different. Right. It's pretty blatant. Like we're, we're not interested in the usual tropes. This is what we do. Uh, I don't know of any other band that like had, imagery of this kind in the way that they did no. with the sound that they did 
it just it further sets them apart. I mean, like there really is, it's so hard to like talk about them and compare them to like some other band. I mean, just, you, you can't really do that. I don't know that you can really do that. Yeah. And I don't want I mean, to We can pick out, you know, parts of songs or, you know, the approach of the instrumentalist or whatever. But when you talk about like the, you know, the totality of their sound, I don't think you can compare it to anything else. Yeah. So this is really the great triumvirate of disharmonic orchestra albums, the music, the art, uh, we hold it on a real high pedestal in case you, anybody hadn't uh, guessed already. <laughs> and then, and then they took a hiatus. They just sort of disappeared with hermaphrodite choirs. They disappeared with hermaphrodite. I'm, I'm pretty sure they were holding up with hermaphrodite choirs somewhere in, uh, I'm going to say Switzerland. So no doubt. Yeah. Had to be, has to be. Yeah. It's a, you know, politically neutral country. Also uh, <laughs> fond of neutral genitalia, <laughs> all, all inclusive. Right. Excellent clockwork. And Great choirs over there. Mm. Fantastic choirs. Yeah. <laughs> but so they, yeah, I mean, so like, you know, last album's 94, then to 2002, I mean, a lot of things happened in metal, in the world, a lot of things changed. So where, where do they wind up after this? You know, they, they, they were clearly listening during this time. They just weren't making music. I, yeah, I guess so. And before we get back to them sort of reforming, would they have survived the 90s? Because, you know, th this whole thing about in the 90s, metal was dead or was it the low ebb? Like, I understand that from like the commercial sort of commercial. sense, yeah. that world, maybe it was. Uh, the big four in Thrash, you know, who were sort of like always sort of the vanguard of, of what was going on in, in real metal. They weren't producing great albums. But you and I both know that there was so much great stuff coming out in the 90s. It was oh. far from dead. And it was, in fact, very active and exciting and productive, innovative. But where would Disharmonic have fit in, say, like 96 or 97? I almost think it's, like, impossible to say. I mean, we know, like, what a head sounds like. But, I mean, what would if they kept going, what would they – well, I don't know. I don't know. Would they I don't have, know that there's an answer would to they that have got swept up in the, uh, the early days of the new metal movement? <laughs> With the uh, well, I mean, for hip hop. Uh, well, I mean, look at Oblivion and look at Suppuration and Loud Blast. I mean, these are you know these are major bands for me. At a certain point, you know, they took an, an evolutionary swing that um, they didn't agree with me. So, I mean, who's to say that Disharmonic Orchestra wouldn't have either? Well, luckily, they kind of sat out the rest of the 90s. I think maybe it was good for them. And then came back in 2002, back on Nuclear Blast, which they had left for, uh, for a little while with Pleasure Dome. That was a Steamhammer album. And we have an album called Ahead, and it's the original three. Do you recall when that came out? Like, were you blown away? Were you really excited when this harmonic came back with a fourth album? I actually wasn't excited, oddly. And I got it, and I didn't really like it that much. I don't think I was excited because I saw the album cover and I was like, really? What yeah. If you've, if you've, not, if you're familiar at all with the, the artwork for the first three albums and you've seen this, I mean, it's pretty, uh, what are they in? What are they telling? I have no idea. It's like, like an iron bullet train with heads with on train. them. I don't know. It looks like a train to me. It always looked like a, like a iron, uh, you know, like, like a clothes iron without the handle <laughs> and with a head. But here's the thing. Here we are in 2018 discussing this odd band who are making us question their artwork and we're sort of big old question marks over our heads. So it's right. kind of like they're doing their job. They're still doing their job. They're still being disharmonic and being weird. I, Matt Johnson said one time that it never felt like they went away for him. They just reappeared in 2002. As if Ahead was the logical successor to Pleasure Dome? 
I, I was never able to actually make sense of what he said, but like, yeah, he said that to him, it never felt like they broke up. They mm. just w- went on, they just went to sleep for a while. Yeah. And I guess that, um, that some of the, the snippets we'll play will illustrate this, but I mean, they were clearly listening to music in the nineties because they're, they pick up a lot of influences that they bring to bear on a head that probably weren't popular before, you know, when they were in their original iteration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have this album. And I, I, it's, I can't say it's grown on me over time, but I've ca- I can't say I've ever really disliked it either. I, I think it's interesting. It's about what it would sound like after an eight year hiatus, I suppose. Uh, yeah, no, this has actually been good for me because I rediscovered it and found out that I liked it a lot more than I did initially. Yeah, it's got some great moments. We also get it back sounded to, yeah, more alive to me than it, it did when I first heard it. Yeah, we also get back to the, some of the great song titles. I, I have to point out the very, there's like a brief kind of 45 second blast song called If This Is It, It Isn't It, Is It? <laughs> Which is just a great song title. And like, I love yeah. what that translates to. It's basically like, oh, so this is it. If that's the case, this is really disappointing. You know, like, <laughs> um, I, I dig that humor and it's coming back. It also, this album has a song called Idiosyncrated, which like, like is basically a revival of idiosyncrasy from right. Not to Be Undimensional. So thanks for that. And they do, they do a cool thing with it. They, they throw in this, what I would maybe call a kind of break that has a little bit of Brit pop element to it or just no, it's no, I, it, it like, I actually have struggled like with calling this anything. It's Brit pop. Yeah. And they keep you guessing, man, this band will keep you guessing. We've talked about little Brit pop snippets and hip hop snippets and green day comparisons, um, you know, in, in and amongst their metals. So yeah, thanks to Sarmonic yeah. for giving us this one. Um, we're going to play a song called nine, nine, nine. Uh, is there anything you want to say about this one before we launch into it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it kind of borders on aggro, right? Yeah, I, but, I think it's, but, it's very 2002. Not it, but not in a bad way, necessarily. I actually think it, they come up with something pretty charming. All right, still a little bit weird. Still a little bit weird, but I think you and I can probably agree, as anybody else listening probably can, um, that in the intervening years, these guys got into Tool, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely. mean, and, and look, it, we, Jeff and I love Tool dearly, but I mean, they, you know, they cast an influence over a lot of bands during this time. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, I, don't, I, I think Disharmonic Orchestra was uh, also not not immune to their their wiles yep uh again this is this is a fine album i think there's a little something lost i don't know if that's like maybe less presence from the bass i don't know if it's uh just less of that sort of bordering on collapse sort of thing they're pretty far removed from their death metal at this point but there's a song called 
pain of existence that I like on this. There's also one that you pointed out that, that we're going to play called Mind Shaver, which is probably... I really like this tune. One of the highlights. So yeah. let's play this one and talk about it afterwards. This is Mind Shaver from Disharmonic Orchestra's Ahead. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it's got like the verse is sort of this street ready kind of hardcore thing. And then the, the it's really atmospheric, interesting chorus. Yeah. Kind of to get back to what you were saying earlier, something's missing. I think metal and disharmonic orchestra and everybody had kind of lost their innocence by this point. Right. Like, Productions have become more streamlined and more mm -hmm. precise. Mm -hmm. um, there was just a different way of doing business in, in 2002 than it was in 93. Yeah, great um, point. Yeah. So they disappeared again, and they disappeared for an even longer time. And they came back a couple years ago. Well, I mean, they came back a, more than a few years ago. In fact, Metal Arch... Yeah, they were playing live several years before, um, before Fear of Onks, right? This is true, yeah. In fact, I was going to say that I don't believe they actually had a hiatus, even though it was longer than the break between album three and four. Right. They just sort of did the occasional festival appearance, I imagine. They, they started doing some great t-shirts. I remember um, uh, hanging out with Matt Johnson, and he was wearing one, and it said something like, uh, Weird Music Since 1988. <laughs> I just love that. I, you know, Matt has a portfolio of disharmonic orchestra shirts. <laughs> I'm sure he does. He probably has that perishing passion one that I don't know what I did with it, but I'd love to love to get it back someday. It's probably in his closet. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so they were kind of around and just sort of simmering and, and eventually, uh, Herwig, Erwig, how do we say his name? The bass player. I always say, uh, Ervig. Ervig. Ervig, Ervig, left Ervig, at some, yeah. Ervig left at some point, which to me is a little bit disastrous. <laughs> uh, uh, for a band like this harmonic. Yeah. Uh, his absence is cruelly felt on fear of angst. I think. Yeah. And, and nothing against the new guy. I mean, I no. think, um, I think once they came around to doing an album, this, uh, Oymar, Hoimar uh, on bass um, does a fine job. The, the band have done a respectable enough album. I don't know if that's like low praise or not, but um, Fear of Angst came out a couple years ago. And what do you, what's your take on this one? I'm, I'm a little cold on it, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's got a lot of 90s rock influences to me, but like I, to go to back with what you were saying about Ervig leaving, like part of the, the, the real success for this band artistically is the democracy that they enjoyed together and how you can all like, no matter what you can always sense all three identities. Mm -hmm. Like there's this sort of um, like monolithic approach or sound to, to this album where basically the guitar and the bass are doing the same thing. And you just, you just don't get that, that uh, synergy. I hate to use the word synergy, but between the three players, you know, that, that sense of communication, um, that's kind of lost on this album to me. It it it's grown on me a little bit. And, and in fact, when I first heard it, I wasn't quite disappointed because I think you know I I was just looking at it as the successor to Ahead, and right. 
you know, rather than sort of like looking at it in the shadow of their first three, uh, I just took it for what it was. And I don't, I don't super, super love it. I don't think I ever will, but there are moments. I, there's moments I'm, we're not even going to play on a, a, there's a song called Proton Radius that I think is quite good. And there's a really great, great vocal. title too. Yeah. Yeah. To- of course, this band with great titles. There's a, also another one with a really, <laughs> I have no idea what the song title means, but it's called Flambition. Um, <laughs> but it's got, it's got a great vocal moment. That's a bit like sort of a, uh, kind of monks chanting in, in a sense, um, over a pretty groovy riff just, you know, so they're still, still reaching out. But, and, and Patrick sounds a little bit different than he's ever sounded on this record. Don't you think he does? He does a little veers a little bit much into hardcore for my liking. Um, they're really unadorned. I agree. Really uh, his charm still comes through. I think he's just always going to have that. Uh, and I, I can, I can hang with it a little, a little bit. This, yeah. this album reminds me a little bit of prong in spots. Uh, uh, yeah. It's almost like we rehearsed this. I was actually going to mention prong. Oh, really? Yeah. It sounds a lot like prong to me. It does. Or let, let's say Meshuggah like stripped away all the complication and went with sheer groove. I think. Straight groove. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. So there's a lot of kind of post this, post that, 90s sort of thing going on. Um, yeah, I get like a lot, of, you know, like post thrash kind of stuff going on. Yeah. Let's listen to a little bit of this song. This, I mean, I, naturally we picked out the, the two, some of the high points from uh, Fear of Angst. And this is a bit from a song called Rascal in Me. And let's just check it out. See, there's a little bit of inspiration there. I, I, I feel like they're kind of captured. the entire record were that good? I'm sorry? I said if the entire record were that good? Yes, exa- exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, just a quintessential disharmonic moment. In fact, the, the, the next and final song we'll play on this episode uh, is a song called Down to Earth, which I do definitely claim is pretty quintessential disharmonic orchestra. But sure. you just don't get those moments front to back unfortunately but the the spark is still there okay oh yeah yeah in fact if, yeah. if you listen on a system with any kind of subwoofer you're going to hear the, and feel the bass like they really uh got a really nice thick low tone and not in an annoying sort of modern way i think i think it really works well for for what they're doing and keeps the bass presence up in the band sound which is pretty key to me so yeah we're just going to move on to the the final song from fear of Onks. this is one called down to earth Love it. And the album, this album gets strong at the end. The final three songs are the best. Um, Rascal and Me, Flambition, 
and uh, down to earth. So let's check it out. So one one final thought there. Martin Messner is still a great drummer, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he'll he'll never not be. So there you have it, folks. The um, the journey of disharmonic orchestra um, from early septic but distorted, mutated death grind to post everything melancholic, aggro, atmospheric rock metal. In our estimation, one of the strangest and most special bands in the metal canon they have been a blessing to us throughout the years and will continue for all our days on this earth and we are just happy and privileged to share them with you um and we hope that you that you get something out of the the depth and the complexity and the beauty um that that jeff and i do has this ever been done a way too long podcast on disharmonic orchestra is it like landing on the moon landing on the moon in the sense that nobody's done this before Right. We, this is the yeah, the Neil Armstrong moment in metal podcasts. Magnanimous. Yeah. Well, for, for all you eight people listening uh, still, we... You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back with the launch of episode five when we delve into the fusion world where brain-frying prog meets decapitating jazz uh, with the balls of rock caught somewhere in the middle. Sounds painful, and it actually should be. It should be noted that this will be the radical research definition of fusion. That leans heavier and weirder and darker than like Weather Report or maybe Stevie Wonder's fusion phase, right? Yeah, yeah, not not particularly interested in that. Yeah, yeah, we've we've kind of found um, between the two of us this intersection of, like Jeff said, like just furious virtuosic playing and aggression and and darkness and weirdness um, that is absolutely tied to the jazz tradition, but also to to rock and metal, um, which makes it. Um, apropos of, of this program and of great interest to us and, and we hope to you as well and the idea behind this next episode i just want to set up a little bit more is that we'll, we'll present 10 really badass fusion decapitations from 10 different bands uh it's going to be we're going to try to hold it to an hour and just make it kind of a blinding blur uh, we are going to hear from giants like mahavishnu orchestra and king crimson and less notorious killers like coliseum 2 and horacy arnold and six others so till next time listen deeply and stay strange